Wouldn't you like to see a crusade like that tomorrow? Today? You know, we used to see crusades like that across England, across the United Kingdom, across Europe, even Australia, America. But not like, not today like we used to. But see, when Peter was preaching to those Jews, at that stage in their history, or those convinced of the Jewish religion, they believed in the creator God. When he said God, they didn't hear many gods or, you know, a God amongst other gods, or they didn't hear tree or rock. When he said God, they understood the creator God. When he said your sinners, they had the law of Moses. So they knew what sin was. Because sin was adultery, sin was idolatry, sin was, you know, they had the Ten Commandments. They knew why death was in the world. In fact, they believed that history about Adam and Eve and the fall of man. They knew about the first sacrifice in the garden when God killed an animal, clothed Adam and Eve, and they understood the sacrificial system. Their stumbling block was that Jesus was the Messiah. So Peter didn't have to come in and convince them of creation and convince them there was such a thing as sin and convince them they needed a saviour. Their stumbling block was that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he was preaching to a creation-based culture who understood the terms, but their stumbling block was the message of the resurrection. If you like, we could say they're on a road. They had the right history, the history in Genesis there. They had that right history leading up to the message of the cross, but their, but their real stumbling block was the message of the cross. That was the problem. Now, when you go to Athens in Acts 17, when Paul went to the Greek philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, and he preached the same message that Peter preached to the Jews, Jesus and the resurrection, what happened? The preaching of the cross was foolishness to the Greeks. How come the Jews responded, oh, pricked in their heart, thousands saved, and the Greeks, huh, what's this all about? But see, the Greeks believed in evolution, that we evolved from the dirt. They believed in many gods. So when you say God, which God? It's like going to Japan when my Japanese translator said, when you just say the word God, they're going to say, well, this is another God with all of our thousands of other gods. He said, you have to define God. If you don't, they won't understand. And you can't just tell them they're sinners. They don't know what that is. That's not a Christian culture. They haven't had a Christian basis. You've got to start at the beginning. Wow, what an idea. Start at the beginning. You know what? God put Genesis at the beginning for a purpose. Because that's the, begin that's the history. That's foundational, everything else. You take Genesis 1 to 11 out and you try to explain where sin came from. You try to explain where we came from. You try to explain where death came from. You try to explain why Jesus is the last Adam. People, without those first 11 chapters, you cannot do it. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 5, Paul continually refers back to Genesis. You see... When Paul was preaching to an evolution-based culture, they didn't believe in the creator God, had no concept of the God of the Jews, no concept about the law of Moses and what sin is. It was foolishness to them. And when you compare those two cultures, here's what I want us to understand. We could do this with Australia. Even though Australia has never been a Christianized country to a great degree, it inherited the British system and their morality initially was built on the Bible. But let's concentrate on America. Generations ago, creation in the school, prayer in the schools, Bible reading in the schools. You go to Washington, D.C., you still see the relic of the past with Bible verses on public buildings and used to be crosses in public places and, and so on. This nation, generations ago, was very much like the Jews. People automatically sent their kids to Sunday school. Even, even in public school, they knew about God and the Bible. And people, generations ago, when you said in the public schools in America, God, most of the students would think of the God of the Bible. But when you go to public schools today and say, God, increasingly, it's which God? There are many gods, just like President Obama said. You see, the nation has changed. The culture has changed. 
And you know what the problem is? We still approach this nation as if it's like the Jews in regard to evangelism. But increasingly, this culture has become like what? The Greeks. And the preaching of the cross is what to the Greeks? Foolishness. Most of our Bible curricula in our churches and, and, and even homeschools and Christian schools approaches our kids as if they're Jews. It's, yeah, here's what the Bible says. And so, you know, if you approach them as Greeks, it would be, let me help you understand that the Bible really is God's word. This history is true. Let me answer the skeptical questions of this age. See, we're not teaching apologetics, not teaching them how to defend their faith. We teach what I call stories. Increasingly, we have kids that think, when you go to school, that's real stuff. When you come to church, that's stories. And people, our problem is, not only is our culture more like the Greeks than the Jews, we have become so Greekized ourselves. We have become so influenced by the Greek philosophy of the age, millions of years, evolution. We've become so secularized, it's like the frog in, 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 the, in the beaker syndrome. We've accommodated and accommodated and accommodated and accommodated and accommodated, and now we think so much like the world, and we're out there trying to, trying to change the culture not realizing we've been changed just like generations of kids. And we've got to understand something. An Acts 2 message increasingly will not work in this culture because it's an Acts 17 culture. Whatever we once were. On the front cover of that Newsweek magazine, The Decline and Fall of Christian America, you know what else they said inside? The present in this sense is less about God and less about the death of God and more about the birth of many gods. Do you know what I believe President Obama is saying and he doesn't realize it? We are no longer like the Jews, we're now like the Greeks. Do you know what they're saying here in Newsweek? We're no longer a culture like the Jews, we're like the Greeks. Whole generations have been taken through a Greek system, turned into Greeks. 90% of kids from our churches have taken into a Greek system and turned into Greeks. And now they won't listen. And we preach to them as if they're Jews. But most of them are already gone. What a difference if we started giving them answers. And by the way, we're going to do that with you tonight and tomorrow night. We're going to give you answers. You know, when it comes to Noah's Ark, he didn't need to take all the different species on the ark. He only needed two of the dog species. We'll explain that to you tonight. That's not evolution. They're still dogs. We'll show you how the flood connects to, to fossil layers. By the way, theologically, the Bible says originally we're all vegetarian, and so are the animals. Death didn't come into the world until after Adam sinned. God didn't change our diet until after, Genesis, after the Genesis flood in Genesis 9 because sin changed everything. If you believe in millions of years, here's a challenge for you. If you believe in millions of years, what do you do with the fact the fossil record is full of evidence of animals eating each other? The Bible says originally they were vegetarian. What do you do with the fact there's lots of evidence of diseases in the fossil record? Did God call cancer very good? What about thorns? There's lots of examples of fossil thorns said to be hundreds of millions of years old. The Bible says thorns come after the curse. Another question, how can you believe in a loving God? Look at all the death and suffering. People, if death and suffering has always been here, what's your answer? But if death and suffering is an enemy, it is an intrusion because of sin, you've got the answer. It's not God's fault, it's our fault because of sin. We're going to deal with a lot of those things, show you a lot of interesting things. Actually, what the Creation Museum, our ministry, is all about is taking Greeks and turning them into Jews. And by the way, it starts in our churches. Well, that's an introduction for you. That's what it's all about. It's, it's one thing to come out and challenge us. It's another thing to say, how do I get equipped? How can I equip my children? How can I witness to my neighbors and friends? We have a website. You can spend millions of years on our website. Uh, AnswersInGenesis.org. What we're going to look at uh, tonight is this origin of so-called races.
Well, I have a little test for you to start with. Can you marry your relation? Yes, no, probably only after counselling. <laughs> the reason I say that to you is because to answer this question, you have to understand something. When you get married, you do marry your relation. Because if you don't, you don't marry a human, then you're really in trouble. <laughs> and if we're all descendants of Adam and Eve, we're all related to each other, whether you like it or not. Isn't that right? <laughs> if you look at what the scripture says, 1 Corinthians 15.45 says, The first man, Adam. You can't get any more explicit than that. How many men were there to start with? One. Genesis chapter 3, verse 20 says, Eve was given that name because she was to be, become, the mother of all the living. You can't get any more explicit than that either. Obviously, there was one man and one woman to start with. Even in Acts 17, verse 26, some translations say of one blood. Some say from one man. But it's the fact that we're all related, all nations of men, for to dwell on the face of the earth, we're all related. So if there's one man and one woman to start with, and Adam and Eve had, let me see, how many children? Children. There was Cain, there was Abel, any others? Seth. Seth. But that's only three males. You've got to have more than that to get the next generation. <laughs> Isn't that right? <laughs> what about the females? Actually, the Bible tells you. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 4. Adam had other sons and daughters. So now, think about this for a moment. Adam and Eve had sons and daughters. Then originally, get rid of all outside ideas for a moment understanding marriage is one man for one woman, then if there's only one man and one woman who have sons and daughters originally, brothers had to marry who? Sisters. Now, immediately I say that, I have people say, wait, 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 brothers aren't allowed to marry sisters, and they say, you can't do that, and you're not allowed to marry, you have to marry, your, uh, you're not allowed to marry your relative, you've got to marry someone who's not related. Wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> Everyone has to marry their relative when you get married. Now, obviously they were very closely related. Do you know Abraham was married to his half-sister? That wasn't a problem. In fact, it wasn't until the time of Moses in Leviticus that God said no longer could close relations marry. Now, following on from what Dr. Lyle spoke to you on last night, you say, okay, well, why is it that close relations could marry back then, but close relations shouldn't marry today? Well, to understand this, you have to do what some people call think poodle. When I was talking about degenerate mutants and the fact that we've all got mistakes, one of our staff did up, well, one of our ex-staff did up that picture. <laughs> but here's the point, right? Poodles, are, you know, our purebred dogs have a lot of mutations in them. That's true. They're sort of concentrated mutations. But let's think about it this way. When God made Adam and Eve, they were perfect. Their genes were perfect. But you know, Adam sinned. And because of sin, you know what happens now? God no longer holds everything together. He, he See, Colossians tells us that Jesus Christ upholds all things by the power of his word. He holds everything together right now. If he withdrew all that power, we wouldn't even exist. He holds us together right now. But see, he didn't withdraw all that power. He withdrew a little bit of that power so that things now run down, so that things fall apart, so that we would die because we had to die for the penalty for sin. Our bodies die, but our soul lives forever. But that's why Jesus Christ died, raised from the dead, and offers us a free gift of salvation so we can spend eternity with him. But what happens now is because there are mistakes occur in our genes, copying mistakes, and they get added to the next generation, then they get added to the next one with more, and they get added to the next with more again, they get added to the next with more again. You know what happens after 6,000 years? Well, look around the room. Really, we're all quite a mess. Did you know the genetic load we carry is extremely great? And scientists are even worried about that. 
Because the human, by the way, it's an argument against evolution for two reasons. One, the human race can't go on too much further into the future because the mistakes are getting, getting, accumulating so much. But there's another argument. Do you realize that if evolution were true, because of all the mutations and mutation rate, you, we couldn't have even evolved to the ape man stage. Life would have been wiped out. So you see, it's even an argument against evolution. But so what happens is we get these mutations and here's the problem. The problem is this. Today, there are so many mutations or mistakes in our genes that brothers and sisters, if you were to marry, you're more likely to have the same mistakes because you inherit them from your parents. And so sperm fertilizes egg and those mistakes get together, it's more likely that they'll reinforce each other and you have problems in the offspring. The further away in relationship from each other today you are, the more likely where one has mistakes, the other has good gene that tends to mask the bad gene. But the further back you go in history, the less of a problem that is. And at the time of Adam and Eve, they had no mistakes originally. Their, their children would have had relatively few mistakes. So originally, brother and sister could marry. It's no different between a man and woman getting married today because you marry your relative anyway. It's just then you married a close relative. And provided it's one man for one woman, there's no difference with, um, uh, with relate, closer relations getting married then, than today except for that relationship. That, that, that's, that's the difference. So see, it's easy to understand, isn't it? Incidentally, even though the study of genetics does throw light for us to help us to understand this, do you realize the answer to where did Cain get his wife is there in the Bible anyway? Even if you didn't have the study of genetics. It's still there. You mightn't have understood some things, but it is there. And people, so one of the things I want to say to us is if only we would start from God's word, we've already got a lot of those answers. Modern science helps throw some light and increased understanding on some of these things, but those answers are there. Even the answers as to how we get all these different people groups are there, as we're going to, going to show you. Now, modern science, the science of genetics, helps throw light more on this and helps us understand it more, but the answers are still there, nonetheless, because God gives us that history. And to understand this, let me just do just a little refresher course. I'm not going to go into the detail that... Uh, Jason went into last night, but just to remind you of something. Remember we talked last night about the fact that in Genesis it says God created kinds of animals and plants after their kind. And actually, as I explained to the young people today, in the classification system, phylum class, order, family, genus, species, the biblical word kind, it's a Hebrew word min, in most instances would equate to the family level. Not the genus level, not the species level, but the family level. So you have the dog family, the cat family, the elephant family, right? Uh, and uh, when it comes to dinosaurs, there's not just one family, there's actually 50 families around about, approximately, of dinosaurs. There are some other animals that have a number of different families, that's true. Um, but uh, the word kind equates to family. Now, if you remember what uh, Dr. Lyle was talking about, when it came to dogs, dogs all belong to one family. And uh, there's different species of dogs, but they all belong to one family. In fact, that's what the secular world says. The secular world says the origin of the domestic dogs from wolves has been established, suggesting a common origin from a single gene pool for all dog populations. And so something like that over time gave rise to all your different species of dogs, but they're still 100% what? Dogs. These might be 20%, uh, but <laughs> you, it, nonetheless, uh, we remember that uh, we have all these different varieties of dogs. Now, if you remember, again, uh, what uh, Dr. Lyle was doing last night, uh, for instance, 
we don't know how many dogs God made to start with, but let's say you started with uh, two dogs and eventually you end up with lots of dogs. And remember how he went through uh, the different combinations of genes. If you start with big A, little A, big B, little C, and so on, you get all these different combinations. One thing I wanted to remind us of here tonight was this. The number of atoms in the whole universe is that many, which is a lot of atoms. But if you took one man and one woman from this audience, a number of children you can have just from, the, just from the information in your DNA right now without having two with the same combination of information is actually uh, this many right, right here, which is an incredible number. That number is so big you can't even think about it. You can't even count that number. And if you think about it, God put that variability into the dog family, into the cat family, into the elephant family, into the human family. When Darwin saw these different changes in species, he thought he was looking at an evolutionary process. He was just looking at the creativity of our, our creator God and the incredible variability that the intelligent creator put into each group. He got it totally wrong, didn't he? And uh, totally uh, misunderstood and all these things. And then it was explained to you that Noah only needed two dogs on the ark. And when those dogs came out of the ark... Uh, eventually they form lots more dogs, but over time, as they split up and go to different places, different combinations survive better in different areas. Remember that? You, you don't get new information. It's new combinations of information. And when you look at how much information there is in our genes, there's, an inc there's just, it's, it's almost like an uncountable number of possible combinations. That's why you can get incredible number of different species within a kind, but they're still the one kind. Actually, deer and moose are the one kind. Turkeys and, and chickens and so on, they're, they're all the one kind. Uh, start to realize Noah didn't need anywhere near the number of animals on the ark that we think. Now I wanted to remind you of that because really the same basic processes are involved here in the humankind. And you think about this. If you're going to get distinct people groups, which we do, which have distinct characteristics that we can say, oh, there's an Australian Aborigine, there's an American Indian, there's an Eskimo, and so on. How, how could you do that if we, if we all go back to Noah, back to Adam? You would need some event, some event that would actually split up the human gene pool and uh, take people away from each other and stop them mixing uh, with each other, sort of isolate them in groups. Can anyone think of anything in the Bible? Is there anything at all that could explain how that could happen? After the flood, Noah and his family gave thanks and offered sacrifices to God for preserving them. God told Noah to go and multiply and fill the earth. Noah's family flourished and multiplied, but they did not spread all over the earth. Instead, they moved down from the mountains of Ararat and settled in the plain of Shinar and dreamed of building a great city. Come, let us build a city and a tower to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, looked down upon them and saw the city and the tower they were building. They are united and speak the same language. Now nothing they imagine to do will be impossible for them. So God went down and confused their language so they could not understand each other. And God scattered them over the face of the earth and they stopped building the city.
They left Dabo by foot, by cart, and by boat. Because of the language barriers, each family group became isolated and developed distinct physical traits and cultures. But all came from the three sons of Noah. So they all share the same genes and all share the same promise of the Savior, the seed which God promised to Adam in the Garden of Eden. So that's it. That could be the end of my talk right there, right? Um, but what we're going to do is ha- ha- throw a bit more light on an understanding of that. By the way, you can understand if they're all descendants of Noah and then they split up and as they moved out over the earth and they'd heard about the flood, obviously, right? they would take those accounts with them and a lot of them would change them. That's why you have flood legends all over the world. Yet the real record that hasn't been changed is in the Bible. That's why you even have creation legends that sound like Genesis in different cultures all over the world. But the real record is in the Bible. People, the fact that the Bible's history, it's staring us in the face that the Bible's history is true. Isn't that exciting? It really is. And yet so many miss it. You know, when I went to university, you know what I was told? Ah, oh, the Babylonians had stories about a flood, but it's, and it's obvious the, the Jews borrowed their ba- stories from the Babylonians. Well, the interesting thing is, one of the Babylonian accounts has a boat that's a cube seven stories high. Boy, that'd survive a flood. You read the Bible, it has a boat that has a six to one ratio, like a great big barge. You tell me which sounds like the original. Fountains of the deep breaking open, water coming from above, or gods cutting each other in half in this, this, this boat that's a cube seven stories high. And, and because gods cut each other in half, there's water spewing it. Which sounds like the original to you? The Bible, doesn't it? You see, in our universities and public schools and so on, they, they put it around the other way and they try to make out, oh, the Bible is the, is the wrong account, the others are the original. It's, it's, it's the other way around. The Bible is the original and the others are perversions of the original. Well, we all go back to Adam and Eve. If we all go back to Adam and Eve and there are only two people to start with, biologically then there's only how many races? Only one. There's only one race biologically. There are other books uh, studied in America. Uh, for instance, a book by Ernst Haeckel. How many of you remember seeing a diagram like that in your textbooks? Who remembers that? Remember that? Yeah, showing you supposedly that the, the, you know, these embryos of human and fish and so on all went through a fish stage with gill slits. It was called embryonic recapitulation, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Do you remember that? Maybe you remember it like this. Who remembers being taught when an embryo develops in its mother's womb, it goes through a fish stage with gill slits till it becomes human? Put your hand up if you remember. Oh, yeah, all across the room. Well, you know the man who popularized that, a man called Ernst Haeckel, it was a fraud. He fraudulently drew those diagrams. In fact, they're his diagrams at the top of the, of the human embryos as they develop, but there's the real ones right there. And see, what he... Um, what he was uh, 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 trying to do, I, I mean, not the human embryos, all the different embryos, making them look like they're all similar to the humans. And there's the real uh, embryos there uh, underneath. And you see they're very, very different from each other. But it was all done in the name of evolution, to try to push evolution. Actually, I've even heard of girls who've gone to an abortion clinic in America and been told what's in your womb is in the fish stage of evolution so you can cut it up. Human embryos never have a, a gill slit stage or anything like that. They have pharyngeal clefts that turn into the middle ear and endocrine glands, but they're not slits. They're, they're not like fish at all. Very, very different. But you see, these things aren't being taught. Did you know that 
Ernst Haeckel's ideas are still in medical textbooks in American universities today, and they're still in a number of the public school textbooks used in America today as well. That's one of the frauds that are still perpetrated upon generations in America. Very sad. And you know, in Ernst Haeckel's book, they were studied in universities across America for years, students read these sort of statements at the lowest stage of human mental development of the Australians and the Bushmen and the Negro tribes and about the English traveller who lived on the coast of Africa says, I consider the Negro to be a lower species of man and then uh, comments like this, uh, the able Austrian missionary Morlang who tried for many years without the slightest su success to civilise the ape-like Negro tribe says any mission to such savages is useless, they stand far below unreasoning animals. Can you imagine what was happening to people's thinking as they are being taught these things? Terrible, isn't it? I tell people, let's use the term people groups, or you could talk about ethnic groups or cultural groups. I like the term people groups. Naturally, hear me say, the different people groups developed after the Tower of Babel, uh, but not different races, because biologically there's only one race. Did you know what the secular world has been saying? Here's a quote from the secular world. More and more scientists find the differences to set us apart are cultural, not racial. Some even say the word race should be abandoned because it's meaningless. You know the sad thing to me? The secular world has been leading the way in dealing with the race issue and not the church. Why is that? Because you know one of the things that happened in the secular world? The secular world actually did some scientific research and found out there was only one race. And they've been leading the way. Do you know why, why the church, by and large, hasn't done it? I, I think for a number of reasons. I think one reason is because so many people have been brought up in the church to think, oh, the Bible is some sort of guidebook over here, instead of the fact it's a history book that we build our thinking upon. And secondly, so many in our churches have compromised with evolution and reinterpreted the Bible. What happens when the secular world then changes their mind, then the church is, uh-oh, the secular world's changed their mind, now we've got to reinterpret our reinterpretation of the Bible. See, it's God's word that doesn't change, it's man's word that does. What a difference if the church had stood on God's word. You know, when I went to school, I was taught that there were four basic racial groups, Caucaloids, Mongoloid, Negroid, Australoid. Who was taught something like that? Were you taught something like that? Oh, yeah. But did you ever ask your professors or your teachers, how did they divide those people into those groups? You see, when the Human Genome Project mapped the human genome, they put together a draft of the entire sequence of the human genome and they unanimously declared there is only one race, the human race. Wow. See, what they should have said was, we've unanimously declared the Bible's been right all along. <laughs> now, here's the interesting thing. You know, the difference between any two people in this room genetically is about 0.2%. Now, for a lot of us, if, we don't, if we've never studied genetics, it gets a little complicated. And, and, you know, we talk about 3 billion base pairs as, as part of our genetics. And 0.2% of 3 billion is actually still a lot of differences. So between any two people, about 0.2% genetic, uh, genetic difference. But here's what the Human Genome Project said. If you ask what percentage of your genes is reflected in your external appearance, the basis by which we talk about race, the basis by which we talk about race is external appearance. They said the answer is in the range of 0.01%. Here's the point I want to make to you. The difference between any two people, any two people genetically, is far greater than the difference between two people that would have been classed from different races. That's why the Human Pro Genome Project said this. The more closely researchers examine the human genome, the complement of genetic material encased in the heart of almost every cell of the body, the more most of them are convinced that the standard labels used to distinguish people by race have little or no biological meaning and the criteria people use for race are based on entirely on external features we are programmed to recognise. 
And people, you know one of the external features we are programmed to recognize in America? It's skin color, let's face it. It really is. Ultimately, everyone has the same skin color. There's a basic pigment called melanin. It's a brown pigment, a couple of forms of that, pheomelanin, eumelanin, and there's some other things involved, but that's the main pigment. It's a brown pigment. And really, it's not a matter of whether you're black or white. It's a matter of whether you're dark brown, light brown, middle brown. You get the idea? It's what shade of brown that you are. Really dark brown people we call black, but they're not really black. Really light brown people we call white, but they're not really white. And using the, the genetic principles that we used last night in regard to the dogs, and we're going to do the same here now. There's probably 50 genes or more involved, and it's much more complicated than this. Again, we deal with basic principles so you get the big picture. So if we have big A, big B genes, meaning a lot of melanin, little A, little B genes, meaning a little bit of melanin, then someone who has all big A, big B genes would have dark skin, what you call black, but they're really dark brown. Someone who has little A, little B genes, light skin. And someone who's a mixture, big A, little A, big B, little B, would be middle brown. Remember, we made the wolf like big A, little A, big B, little B. Remember that from last night? So the wolf was sort of like the original. And then we said the poodle was more like what? Little A, little A, little B, little B, etc. You see, if you think about it, if you start with only little A's, little B's, you can't get back... To, to the middle brown. But if you start with two people who are middle brown, you could actually get someone who was light or someone who was dark with, with, with those, those genes. But if you start with just that dark person at the top there on their own, and they, and they um, uh, marry someone the same as them, that's all they're going to produce. Someone down the bottom there with all little a's, little b's, they marry someone like that, that's all they'll produce. But someone in the middle can get offspring with a whole different range, range of genetic variability. And so if you start to think about that, what colour, in, in quotes, in other words, what shade, was Adam and Eve skin? They wouldn't have, all, they wouldn't have been light with all little A's, little B's, because the whole world would be. They wouldn't have been dark with all big A's, big B's, because the whole world would be. But if they were middle, in the middle brown, with a mixture, then their children could have been light through to dark in one generation. There's lots of families like that in the world. You, you'll see them in places like India and places like that. There's even a number in America too. Actually, they're quite exciting families. You think about it. What's the next one going to be like? Here's a picture that was from National Geographic about eight years ago when they had children from Washington International Primary School. And here's National Geographic, a secular magazine, to teach you that everyone has the same skin colour. And they said it's just varying amounts of the skin colour. And so they put all these children together, ha having more and more of the pigment melanin. And by the way, you can do the same sort of thing for eye shape. The eye shape, the genes that determine how much fat is in your eyelid and some other factors and whether you have the almond shape or not. It, it, it's, like, it's like skin shade. It's just uh, very easy to understand uh, variations. And in fact, uh, what we're helping you understand here is, hey... From Adam and Eve, it's so easy. When you think of the amount of genetic variability, remember that figure? Two people in this room, how many children could you have without two having the same combination? 10 to the 2017, where the number of atoms in the universe is 10 to the 80th power. Do you realize how much genetic variability God brought into Adam and Eve? And we see it expressed because of the Tower of Babel and the separation of the human genome into the distinct people groups. It's very easy to understand. People, there's nothing hard about that. It's staring us in the face. It is so obvious. And we think those differences are so major, those outside differences are very small differences. Well, let's deal with one other issue uh, to finish with here. Because if I don't deal with this, people come and ask me. 
And usually I deal with this at the end and then leave and catch a plane. <laughs> it's this, people come and say, well, if there's only one race and we all go back to Noah and back to Adam, then what do you say about interracial marriage? Well, first thing I say is there's no such thing. But there is, but there isn't. Because you see, biologically there is only one race, but spiritually there are two. There's the saved race and the unsaved race. You know, when people say to me, well, does the Bible say anything about interracial marriage? I say, it sure does. It is totally against it. It says the saved race should never knowingly marry the unsaved race, and that's what the Bible says about interracial marriage. People, the bottom line is, a Christian should never knowingly marry a non-Christian. And you know one of the problems that we've got in many of our churches today? There are mums and dads who are more concerned their son or daughter not marry someone they think is from a different biological race when there's no such thing, instead of whether they are of the same spiritual race, which is what marriage is all about. I pray that uh, this couple of days will really challenge us concerning not adding man's ideas to the Bible. And you know what, people? It affects our children. It affects our witness to the world. It affects our witness to the friends. Our friends, let's get back to the authoritative word of God. And young people, lots of doubts around today. Satan is trying to get you to doubt God's word. Did God really say? It's one of the reasons we provide these resources and these lectures. We want you to understand the more that you study God's word and study uh, science and all the different disciplines, you know what the more you see? Over and over again, it confirms the Bible's history is true. The Bible's history is true. This is the word of God. That's why the gospel based in that history is true. And I'll hand over to Pastor Larry. Porn for Bibles at the Texas College. Oh yes, that sort of thing's happening across America at our secular colleges. And you know what? The atheists are on the march. They really are. You know, the atheists are very aggressive about getting their message out. It's a shame Christians aren't as aggressive as the atheists. By the way, the atheists are very, they're not only a minority, if I can say this, they're a small minority. And yet they have more of an influence on this culture right now than do the Christians. And you know, as of the end of last year, in 56 cities, 29 states, there were billboard campaigns. In fact, these have increased since then. This is from Cincinnati, the atheists putting them up all across this country. Don't believe in God, you're not alone. Or this one from Chicago, um, are you good without God? Millions are. And this one from Cleveland, and this one from Columbus, and this one from Dallas-Fort Worth. And then they've got ads on buses across this country. Uh, buses in Washington, D.C. This one's in Iowa. Uh, this is a billboard from Seattle at uh, Christmas time. Yes, Virginia, there is no God. That sort of thing's happening all across the nation. There's a, this nation has changed. But you know what? We've got a bigger problem than that. The bigger problem is we've got a problem in our church. Do you realize George Barnard did statistics nearly eight years ago, 2002, and found out that two-thirds of young people are leaving the church by the time they reach college age? He reconfirmed that in 2006. If, if you knew that two-thirds of the young people in our churches are going to leave the church, would that concern you? You know, what that means is, statistically speaking, even though there are exceptions depending on the individual church, nonetheless, generally speaking, take all the children from kindergarten through college age, line them up out the front here, and then say two-thirds of them are going to leave the church, and they're my kids and grandkids. By the way, where's the church going to be in a couple of generations? It's one of the reasons why we approached America's research group, headed by a respected researcher, Britt Beamer. He's like Gallup and Barna, highly respected in the secular and Christian worlds. And we said, nobody's done this before, but we need to do this. We want to find out why they leave, leave the church. Why and when. Because then you can't do anything about it until you really understand why. Why and when. 
And so he interviewed a thousand people in their 20s, half male and half female, who went to church regularly as kids. And we said they had to go to a conservative church, so these are the best the results could be. And they left the church. And we wanted to find out why. And we published the books and published the results in a book called Already Gone. You know what we found? At what age did you begin to really question contents in the Bible? We found that they were leaving in their hearts and minds way before college. 40% by the end of middle school, 45% by the end of high school. If you don't believe the Bible, when did you first start to have doubts? They didn't start to have doubts in college primarily. 40% by the end of middle school, another 45% or so by the end of high school. People, most of those two-thirds are going to leave the church, are in our churches right now, and in their hearts and minds, most of them are already gone. Would you say questioning was the beginning of your doubt in the Bible? Oh, yes, questioning. And we live in a world where there's all these questions. The Bible can't be true. You can't trust the Bible. The Bible is just a myth. And, you know, they watch television, and we hear it all the time. Uh, they, they go to public school. 90% of these kids go to public schools. 90% of kids from church homes go to public schools. And even though you might be a teacher in the public schools and a missionary in that system, as I was, by the way, because I taught science in the public schools in Australia as a missionary in that system, boy, do they need missionaries, and they need our prayers. But you see, let's be honest, by and large, they have thrown God, the Bible, prayer out. They've thrown out Christianity out of the public schools. And the Bible, if anything, is taught against in a lot of instances. In fact, there's a a controversy, controversy, uh, in tech, in uh, Tennessee right now. They're using a biology textbook in one of the public schools there. That's really a college textbook they're using in the public school. And it actually defines those who believe in creation that it's a myth the myth of biblical creation. See, they're being taught that the Bible is not true. These sorts of things are happening all across the nation. And you know, our kids have questions. What sort of questions? If I was to drag one of you out here this morning and then drag an atheist in here, maybe one of the atheists that come, come, uh, comes to the Creation Museum, we, we have atheists all the time. It might be surprising to you. You couldn't blow them into a church with a stick of dynamite, but they will come to the Creation Museum, which is interesting. We had 300 come as a group last year. You might, just don't come on that day. It was, a, it was a very interesting day, but the Lord got us through it. And all I can say is 300 atheists heard the gospel. That's, that's what happened. And uh, they... They saw the word of God. They heard the word of God. Uh, but, uh, you know, you, you imagine if we had one of these atheists out here this morning and he said, you go, you go to church, you believe the Bible? Well, why do you believe the Bible? Well, how do you know it's the word of God? Well, where did it come from? Well, why those 66 books? Why not some other books? Other people say there should be other books in there. And what do you mean it's inspired? And who, who made God anyway? And where did God come from? Let's stop right there for a moment. That's got nothing to do with the creation evolution issue. That's just basic Christian apologetics. Ask yourself in your own heart and mind, could I answer those questions? Because if you can't, your kids can't. You know, 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to give an answer, which means an apologetic, comes from the word apologia, which means a logical reason, defense of the faith. I find most Christians don't even know how to defend basic Christianity, let alone Questions like, how did Noah fit the animals on the ark? Who's heard the accusation, Noah couldn't fit the animals on the ark? Let's, let's be honest, put your hand up if you heard that. Yeah, of course we have. But do we know the answers? And what about evolution? Man evolved from apes. There's no God. Everything can be accounted for by natural processes. Can we answer those sort of questions? Where did Cain get his wife? What about the origin of the races? How could the Bible be true? How can we all go back to Adam and Eve if you've got all these different groups of people? 
See, I find most people can't answer those questions. You know what we found from this research? That these young people weren't taught apologetics. They weren't taught to defend their faith. It's one thing to tell them the Bible's true. It's another to teach them how they can answer the skeptical questions of the age and, and, and stand on the authority of the word. And people, we've got something missing from our churches. And you know what else we found? You know, Britt Beamer asked them the, the reason they left the church. You know what the major reason was? There are other reasons too, but the major one, they said hypocrisy. So he's the type of researcher that then goes and asks open-ended questions. What do you mean by hypocrisy? Do you know what the, the meaning of hypocrisy was? Going to church and being told, we believe the Bible, trust in Jesus, but then being told, but you don't have to believe this part of the Bible. And particularly in the area of Genesis was the issue. Particularly. You know, it was interesting... One of those atheists that came through the museum last year, he wrote this afterwards. He said, for me, the most frightening part was the children's section in the Creation Museum. It was at this moment that I learned the deepest lesson of my visit to the museum. It is in the minds and hearts of our children that the battle will be fought. It is in the minds and hearts of our children. Doesn't that sound like a Bible verse? How often did God say to the Israelites, teach your children, don't forget to teach your children. Psalm 78, read through Psalm 78, Dad. Fathers, teach your children so they'll not forget to teach their children. Fathers, teach your children so they'll not forget to teach their children. What happened? The Israelites forgot to teach their children. They lost it. Hitler said something similar. Do you know what, do you, do you know what is, is amazing to me? The secularists know if we can gain the hearts and minds of your kids, we'll get the culture. And people, by and large, many of us have let that happen. We've handed them over to the secularists of the age. You know, as you start to think about this, 90% of kids from our church homes go to public schools. And as I said, I know there are some missionaries in there and you need our prayers and, and, and to be that salt and light. But a lot of people think, oh yeah, but public schools today, secular education, secular education is neutral because now they don't talk about God or the Bible or prayer, so now they're neutral. Is there any such position as a neutral position? The Bible says you're either for Christ or you either walk in light or you walk in. You either gather or you... Where's the neutrality? We're going to talk about that tonight and a little bit again tomorrow night. There is no neutral position, people. There's none at all. And in fact, they say, yeah, but, but, but like the textbooks, they don't mention God or the Bible, they're neutral. Okay? We have samples of most of the biology and geology textbooks used in the public schools in our offices. And I want to give you a couple of little quotes from them. Here's one from one of the biology textbooks. Science, telling the students, science can only explain things. We restrict science to natural causes. Supernatural explanations of natural events are simply outside the bounds of science. By the way, do you know what's covered in those books? The origin of man, the origin of the universe, the origin of animals. Do you know what they're saying? In regard to the origin of every aspect of reality, you can only explain it using natural processes. The supernatural is not, in, is not allowed. Do you know what they've just done? They've just thrown out Christianity... And now they're promoting what? Atheism. It's the religion of atheism. It's the religion of naturalism. That is not neutrality. In fact, in one of the earth science textbooks, the goal of science is to explain things using natural phenomena, only natural events, only natural forces. You're not allowed to use anything from the Bible. You can't talk about Noah's flood. You can't talk about God. That has nothing to do with science. And by the way, tonight I'm going to specifically help us understand the word science means knowledge. And creationists are not against science. We love science. Observational science. It builds our technology. The knowledge gained by observation. But when it comes to knowledge concerning the past, when you weren't there, your beliefs about the past, that's totally different. And that's where people get confused. You know, people think it's, oh, you're on about the Bible versus science. No, I am not. It is not the Bible versus science. It is not science versus the Bible. 
Christians and non-Christians all have the same observational science. But we have different beliefs concerning the past. We have different starting points. National Academy of Sciences sent this book to public schools across America. Science explanations must be based on naturally occurring phenomena. I want us to understand something. A lot of us have been duped in this nation by the so-called separation of church and state. Even Christians have been duped into that. By the way, it is not a part of your constitution. It's not in your First Amendment, which is called the Establishment Clause. In fact, the, the wall of separation phrase was in a letter that Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptists who were asking him about state rights. It had nothing to do with the issues that, that we equate it with today. And a lot of people have been duped into thinking separation of church and state means that, oh, you know, you, if you don't talk about God or the Bible, uh, that, that's neutral. And that's why many Christians, and, and why I believe the church by and large has lost the education system, why we're losing the abortion battle, the gay marriage battle, because you, you didn't have to watch uh, some of the conservative people that get on television. They don't use the Bible in their arguments. It's all, well, traditional values. Well, this is what's right. Well, family values. People, you can use those phrases all you want, but they're just opinion. Unless there's an absolute authority. And you see, we've gotten away from the fact that the Bible is the absolute authority. God's word makes it clear. There is no neutrality. He who is not with me is against me. He who doesn't gather with me scatters. There is no neutral position. What people call neutrality is really, we no longer build our thinking on God's word. Now we build it on man's word. Did you know there are only two religions in the world? Starts right there in Genesis 3. Here's what God said or you, you don't have to obey God's word. You can decide truth for yourself. You can be God. And people, that's it. There are only two religions in the world. You either start with God's word or man's word. This nation started primarily by people who built it on God's word, but this nation has changed. Whatever we once were, said President Obama, we are no longer because we no longer build our thinking on the Bible. Now it's man's word, which means anything goes. But here's the interesting thing. You have a conflict of worldviews based upon the Bible, the absolutes of Christianity, based upon man's word, moral relativism. And see, people who have moral relativism are people who say that they're tolerant. They're some of the most intolerant people on the planet. And when they say tolerance, what they mean is this. You've got to tolerate all views. Okay, my view is they're wrong and this is the right one. No, you can't have that. They're intolerant of our view. See, when you've got the absolutes of Christianity, marriage is one man for one woman, you've got these people saying marriage is anything you want it to be, there's a clash there. And they think we're intolerant. But it's, it's not us, by the way. It's our thinking based upon God's word. But they're intolerant of God's word and the absolutes of Christianity. And the absolutes of Christianity is saying what you're saying there is wrong. That's the clash. The clash is really a foundational level. It's God's word versus man's word. And as you start to think about that, think about that second verse, Psalm 11.3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Here's a barn that had a foundation that was collapsing. And when the, the foundation collapsed, the structure came down. That collapsing structure there represents to me what's happening in our Western world, the transition that's occurring. In fact, here's a picture of that collapsing structure. Increasing abortion and gay marriage and moral relativism and getting away from the absolutes of Christianity... Why has that happened? Because a foundation has been attacked. What's the foundation? The authority of the word of God. That's what's happened. And here's what I want us to understand. The attack on God's word in this era of history has been a pretty specific attack in regard to the first chapters in Genesis. That's what I want to challenge us with. Please understand this. God's word has been under attack since Genesis 3. You know, in the New Testament, Paul has a warning for us. You ever read this warning? 2 Corinthians 11.3, beware, be warned. 
Just as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, where do you read about the serpent tempting Eve? Genesis chapter 3. Just as the serpent did this, so your minds shall be corrupted from the simplicity of this in Christ. You know what Paul is saying? Satan is going to use the same method on you as he did on Eve. So if we go back, what was that method? Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, did God really say can you trust God's word? You can doubt God's word. You don't have to believe God's word. You know what the attack was? On the word of God. Do you realize the attack has always been on the word of God? But it manifests itself in different ways in different areas of history. You know, in, in Peter and John's day, when they were out preaching the gospel, do you think anyone came up to them and said, so if we're able to preach about Jesus and the resurrection, well, what do you do with carbon dating? No, it wasn't an issue in their day, was it? But there were issues in their day relating to the Word of God. People, there's been a particular attack in our era of history on the Word of God. That attack manifests itself in different ways in different eras of history. Understand the times and the way that attack has occurred on the Word of God in this era of history. So in Genesis, but does it really matter what you believe about Genesis? I suggest this to you. An attack on Genesis is not only an attack on the history that's foundational to all doctrine, and the gospel. But it's an attack on the very word of God itself. Doesn't the scripture say all scripture is inspired by God? See, in Matthew 19, when Jesus was asked about marriage, what did he say? Have you not read, he which made the beginning made them male and female, which is a quote from Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. Jesus believed Genesis chapter 1. And said, you become one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus believed Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. You know what Jesus was saying? The history in Genesis is true. That's why the doctrine of marriage is one man for one woman. But you see, if you want to tell President Obama or the Senate or Congress this, the problem is we have so many in our churches today and church leaders who say, but Genesis, we don't take that as literal history. If you don't take it as literal history, then marriage is whatever you want to make it to be. But do you know why I believe Genesis? Because Jesus believed Genesis. And Jesus is the word. And he quoted from the written word. Not just the doctrine of marriage, by the way. Do you realize ultimately every single biblical doctrine of theology, directly or indirectly, is founded in Genesis 1 to 11? Why don't you think about it for a moment? Why is there sin in the world? Genesis 1 to 11. That's where sin came from. Why do we wear clothes? Genesis 1 to 11. God gave clothes because of sin. Why do we have a seven-day week? Genesis 1 to 11. That's where the seven-day week came from. It doesn't come from astronomy. It comes from the Bible. Why is there death in the world? Genesis 1 to 11. Death was a penalty for sin. Why is marriage one man, one woman? Because the origin of uh, marriage is in Genesis. Why do we need a saviour? Genesis 1 to 11. Why is Jesus called the last Adam? Takes the place of the first Adam. Genesis 1 to 11. Why do we need a new heavens and new earth? Because something happened to the original heavens and earth. The whole creation now groans because of sin. Genesis 1 to 11. Do you think Genesis 1 to 11 is important? It's a foundational history for the whole of the rest of the Bible. Now, I don't want people to get me wrong here because I, I hear this all the time and it sort of drives me nuts if I can say that. And that is uh, people who, who say things like, you people in Answers in Genesis, you're saying if we don't believe in six literal days in a young earth like you do, that we can't be Christians. I, I never said that. Where do we have that on our website? I never say that. Like, what does the Bible say? Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, and believe in a young earth in six literal days, you'll be saved. <laughs> well, the Bible doesn't say that, does it? The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You know, I've had people say to me, um, they, they've said things like, Salvation is not conditioned upon 
what you believe about the days of creation. I'd say that's true. Salvation is not conditioned upon what you believe about the age of the earth. It's not conditioned upon uh, the days of creation. It's conditioned upon faith in Christ. Isn't that right? It's faith in Christ that saves you. But I'll tell you what it is conditioned upon. The authority of the word. Isn't that right? And do the days of creation relate to the authority of the word? Hmm, there's a question for us. You see, it is true. You can be a Christian and believe in millions of years. You can be a Christian and not believe in the six literal days of creation. There are many in our churches like that, many Christian leaders like that. doesn't stop them from getting into heaven. And then people say, oh, so it doesn't matter then. I didn't say that. And here's how I like to explain it to people. I would presume that most of you here this morning would be born-again Christians who would believe that Jesus Christ bodily rose from the dead. Let me ask you a question. How do you know Jesus Christ bodily rose from the dead when you didn't see it happen and you don't have a movie rerun of it, so how do you know? Where did you get it from? Oh, you got it from the Bible? You mean you want me to take this as authoritative? You want this to be the word of God, God breathed, that I, I take God's word as written and let it speak to me in the type of literature, language? Hmm. But wait a minute, isn't it true that the secular scientists say a man can't rise from the dead, so shouldn't we reinterpret the resurrection on the basis of what the secular scientists would say? No. Why not? Because that's, that's, that's the secular view of the day. By the way, do you believe in the virgin birth? How do you know? We've never seen a virgin birth in humans today, and secular scientists will tell you you can't have a virgin birth in humans, so shouldn't we reinterpret that? Well, no, you can't do that. No, but that is the secular view of the age. Oh, no, 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 but this is the word of God. Oh, I see. So you people probably believe a fish swallowed a man too. I've never seen a fish swallow a man. Well, not in live. <laughs> secular scientists will say it can't happen. Oh, but the Bible says. But then we go to Genesis, and I want you to think about this. In the majority of our churches, Christian colleges, Bible colleges, seminaries across this nation, and if we said... But if you take a plain reading in Genesis, as God created in six days, that death came after sin, that Adam was made from dust, woman from his side, there was a global flood, and here's what you hear. No, we don't believe that. No, it could be millions of years. No, the flood might be local. No, the days could be millions of years long. No, God could have used evolution. No, there could have been a big bang. Excuse me, that's not what the Bible says. Ah, oh, but the secular scientists, oh. And here's what I want us to understand, because it really started in England. Back in the late 1700s, early 1800s, there were people who were deism materialists. This is where the idea of millions of years first came from. You can research it yourself. Deism materialists who wanted a scientific so-called justification for not believing the Bible. And they came up with the idea that the layers had to take millions of years to get there. Many church leaders in England said, that's okay, we'll add that to the Bible and reinterpret the days, the day-age theory. Along came Darwin, he popularized evolution, and they said, oh, we can take that and say God used evolution. Along came Fred Hoyle, coined the term the Big Bang, and they said, we can believe in the Big Bang. You, you know, I've had many people even today say to us, well, I tell my kids that, you know, as long as you say God did it, you can believe in the Big Bang, you can believe in evolution, as long as you say God did it, what's wrong with that? And here's my answer, it is not what God said he did. And that's the issue. You see, the Bible makes it clear, death came after sin. How could you have death in the fossil record millions of years before sin? The Bible makes it clear, Adam was made from dust. How could that represent evolution? The Bible says, from dust we come and to dust we return. What ape man do we return to when we die? Then it says the woman was made from his side. What do you do with that? You know, I've had people say to me, but, but isn't Genesis really a picture of the Big Bang? Excuse me, the Big Bang 
Secular theory has the sun coming before the earth, and the earth is a hot mountain blob that cools down for millions of years. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was covered with water. And you can say, God could have used the Big Bang, then you've said to your kids, which means God got it wrong, and you've got to reinterpret it. And people, that's the issue I want to challenge us with. That's what it's all about. It's an issue of authority. And you know what? You mightn't consciously think about it like this, because here's what I want you to understand. It, might, it mightn't affect your salvation in that sense. You can say, well, I grew up in, in this culture, and I believe in evolution in millions of years. I'm a Christian, and I'm going to heaven. That's, that's fine. But how does it influence your kids and people who you influence in regard to the authority of Scripture? You know what I often find, more often than not? Those that compromise God's word, it's often in the next generation you see them not as interested in Christian things or walking away from the church. That's where you often see it, within one or two generations. Because people, that's what happened in England. When, when, the, when the church unlocked that door to say you don't have to take God's word as written, you can take ideas outside the Bible and reinterpret it, subsequent generations pushed that door open further and further. What have we lost from our, our world, our Western world? Biblical authority. And you see... When you think about it, if you start with that foundation of God's word as the absolute authority, there are moral absolutes, right and wrong. Marriage, one man for one woman. Abortions, wrong. But if you as a Christian have taught your kids, you can take man's ideas and reinterpret the geology, biology, astronomy in regard to history, why can't they take man's ideas and reinterpret the morality? And we see that in our churches. You usually see those who compromise with evolution of millions of years end up, eventually, a lot of them, in some of these Christian colleges will end up supporting Gay marriage will end up even supporting abortion because it's the same philosophy. You're standing outside the Bible and it's that door that's unlocked and you're putting man in the authority instead of God. And you see, as you start to think about it, what's happened is we have whole generations today that are taught a geological history, biological history, astronomical history, anthropological history. By the way, you notice I emphasize the word history because this is a problem we've got today. We've got to understand something. That when you're taught observational science where you mix things together and you observe what's happening and that builds our technology and you look down a microscope and see a cell, creationists and evolutionists believe all the same things. The Bible is not a textbook of observational science. It doesn't tell you how to build a motor car or build a rocket ship or something like that. The Bible's a book of history. You know, a man once said to me, he jumped up in a university, but the Bible's not a textbook of science. And I said, you're right, and I'm glad it's not because science textbooks change every year. The Bible is primarily a textbook of history. And where it touches on that history, is it correct? And you see, what's happening is we have whole generations today being taught a history in the scientific age that totally contradicts the Bible. And they see this attack on God's word. And they're saying, what's the church going to do about this? You know what much of the church says? Well, don't worry about that. You can believe what you're taught at school. But trust in Jesus, that's the most important thing. But they recognize the message of Jesus comes from the same book. As Genesis 1 to 11. And if you can't trust the first part of that history, how can you trust the rest of the history, the gospel that's based in that history? And if you change your foundation from God's word to man's word, don't be surprised then when they change their worldview from a Christian one to a secular one with moral relativism. In fact, I'd like to sum it up with these two castle diagrams. Here's the foundation of God's word, the structure of Christianity, the gospel, the doctrines that come out of that, the foundation of man's word, and the structure of secular humanism, moral relativism. There's been a particular attack on God's word today, 
It's Genesis 1 to 11. Much of the church has said, we don't need that, it doesn't matter, but let's keep the rest of the Bible in this structure. People, that structure needs a whole foundation or it'll collapse. And then we look up here and we say, look at all the problems in the culture. And don't get me wrong when I say this, but abortion, gay marriage, they are not the problems. It doesn't mean we don't stand against them, but they're not the problems. They are the symptoms of the problem. They're the symptoms of a foundational change. And see, if you think about it, look at it like this. We have spent millions of dollars as a church in America fighting those social issues, abortion, gay marriage, the Ten Commandments issue, creation in schools, whatever it is. We've spent millions of dollars fighting those issues. Stand back and look at the big picture. Despite little successes here and there, like in California with the marriage issue and so on, but then look what's happened since. Here's my point. When you look at the big picture perspective, has it really worked? The answer is no. Why not? Because what happened was the secularists understand the battle is in the hearts of minds of our children. You take generations of children and you change their hearts and minds and in regard to God's word and you'll change their worldview and you'll change the culture. So what did the church do? We look at the change in culture and say we've got to change the culture back. The Bible doesn't say go into all the world and change the culture. The Bible says go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples because they change the culture. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Our heart and our mind and our worldview, that's what changes the culture. So what do we need to be doing? People, what we need to be doing is seeing hearts and minds changed in regard to the word of God, to stand on the word of God. People saved, one to the Lord Jesus Christ, having a truly Christian worldview. That's what will change the culture. And one of the reasons why we haven't done that, because, again, it's a separation of church and state issue, and we think that if we start talking about the Bible, and because so much of the church hasn't understood where the real attack has been, we have let the secularists captivate the minds, of hearts and minds of generations of our kids. Two-thirds of young people are leaving the church. People, I have a challenge for us. Look, if, you, if, you, if you're sitting there saying, well, I still believe in millions of years and evolution, I mean, that's the science of the day, whatever... Stand back and have a look. We are losing two-thirds of our young people. We are losing this culture. The church is not touching the culture. You have to answer the question then, what is wrong? You know, the Bible tells us quite clearly it's an authority issue. Trust in God. Stop putting your trust in man. Stand upon the authority of God's word. We need to get out there and preach the gospel. Go into the world and preach the gospel. But, you know, when I, when I say to people we need to go out there and preach the gospel, I like to ask them a question. Well, okay, we would agree on that, but what do you mean by the gospel? People say, well, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross, raised from the dead, but isn't it also true that unless you understand the bad news in Genesis, you're not going to understand the gospel? You imagine going to somebody and you're not allowed to use Genesis and you're going to preach the gospel. Trust in Jesus. Who's he? He died on the cross for you. Why did he die? Well, he died because, because you're a sinner. Why am I a sinner? Well, where did sin come from? Well, why has death got anything to do with it? Well, who is Jesus? Look, don't worry about that. Just trust in Jesus. How do, you, how do you preach the gospel if you can't give that foundational knowledge? See, the gospel really consists of the foundational knowledge that Christ has created sin into the world, death as a result of sin. That's why Jesus Christ stepped into history to be a man. That's why he died, because death was a penalty for sin, raised from the dead. And one day there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth to come where it says death will be thrown into the lake of fire. There'll be no more death. People, most of what we do when we present the gospel in our church today is to concentrate on the power and the hope of the gospel, not the foundational knowledge. We assume that it's there. We can't assume that any longer. You know, 1 Corinthians one twenty three says, we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block, but under the Greeks foolishness. I want to look very quickly as a final thing here. 
We preach Christ crucified under the Jews' stumbling block, under the Greeks' foolishness. You ever thought about this verse in regard to evangelism and, and, and our own country here today? See, when you look in scripture, it's interesting. We can take two examples real quickly. This normally takes an hour to do. I'm going to do it in 10 minutes. But we can take two examples. When Peter goes and preaches to the Jews and Paul goes and preaches to the Greeks, and if you look at those two examples and then apply it to our culture today, it is mind-blowing. See, when Peter went to the Jews, he preached unto them about Jesus and the resurrection. And you know what happened? 3,000 souls were saved. Wow. Wow. 